On today's show, Archbishop Amos Gullickson will be back in the studio. He's going to tell us what his uh, story is of his vocation. We're going to find out how a small town South Dakota boy, I think he's small town, I can't remember if he was Sioux Falls, it's been a Sioux while. Sioux Falls. Um, how he ended up as an apostolic nuncio for the Catholic Church, traveling around Europe and doing all kinds of cool things. So, uh, and I have to warn you that I had to, he was very talkative. It was a great interview, so much so I had to cut him off. I had to cut <laughs> off an archbishop at the end. Wow. <laughs> I know, it's terrible. Um, so you won't hear the entire interview on radio, so come on over to YouTube if you want to see the end. Uh, at our handle's SF Diocese there, and you can see the last part of the interview. First, we will get some biblical bites with Dr. B, who's sitting across from me. Yes, I am. How are you doing, Renee? I'm doing great. What's today, Renee? It is the third Sunday. Just of because our Archbishop was so chatty, we got to. Yeah, we got to. We don't have much time. <laughs> third Sunday of Easter. Yes, it is. Um, so, the thing I actually want to highlight. So, th- there's so many. <laughs> the readings are so rich, but there's some of my favorites that I always talk about. Like, oh, sure. the gospel is the road to Emmaus. I always right. talk about. There's so much I love about the road to Emmaus. Acts the Apo- The first reading is from Acts chapter two. It's uh, part of Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Okay. When he gets up and boldly proclaims Jesus risen from the dead to his fellow Jews. But I, what I want to focus on today actually is from the, the collect or the opening. Prayer. Okay. Uh, so, it be, so this is again, the opening prayer at mass, um, which if, if, if People are anything like me. You know, it's early in the mass. So I'm still sort of like getting in the groove. You know? Especially and, if you just came in. Like, right. Like if you slipped in right before mass exactly. started. You haven't yeah, quite yeah, settled in yet. Exactly. Yeah. So so it's, it's it's the last part of the introductory rites before we sit down. Yes. The last thing before you sit is the, the opening prayer or collect. So it starts this way. May your people exult forever, O God, in renewed youthfulness of spirit. So that rejoicing now in the restored glory of our adoption, we may look forward in confident hope to the resurrection of the day, to the rejoicing of the day of resurrection. The thing that I that, that I want to comment on, uh, Renee, it's, it's from the beginning. May your people exalt forever, O God, in renewed youthfulness of spirit. Yeah. So I, I just love that the image of youthfulness of spirit. There's, there's this saying, um, you know, our faith is ever ancient, ever new. Um, and there's this saying about the church that she is old in the best sense, wise, but also youthful because every year she is renewed at the Easter vigil oh, yeah. by new members. Right. So I, I think, you know, it, I don't know. I, I, I do think if, if most of us like were to put, like put a face with their idea of the church, like how would, probably older. I mean, it's been around for 2000 mm-hmm. years. going to be some wrinkles and so on. Uh, yep. But the reality is that the church is in fact full of vigor and life, and, and and that's highlighted to me in this part of the collect. I'm going to talk about some other things too, but in renewed youthfulness of spirit. So, do you and are, are are you and I are we? Do we have a renewed youthfulness of spirit? Mm. Um, are we, uh, especially during the Easter season, but year round, do we have that joie de vivre, oh. as oh. the French say? What does joie de vivre mean, Elise? She knows exactly what Very, that means. Joy of life. Joy, joy of life. De vie. Ah, okay. Joy. Do we have that 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 youthful like the, the excitement like um, G K G K Chesterton, who's the a British convert back in the late 20th century. This was him. I mean, he, he's um, he was always excited about everything. Um, one of Chesterton's favorite things, which ties in with all of this, um, he talked about how you know we get bored by routine and repetition. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the sun comes up every day, right? Goes down every yep. day. Comes in the morning, goes down at night. Uh, but what God says to the sun every day is, 
do it again. Do it again. <laughs> that was so cool. That, do, do it, it again. again. That renewed youthfulness of spirit. So as as we're going through this Easter season, a couple weeks in, may we have the optimism and joy of life of the children. I love that, Dr. Spread. Amen. In studio with me today is Archbishop Thomas Gullickson. Welcome, Archbishop. Thank you, Renee. Uh, he is a retired <clears throat> Archbishop for, well, for the church. It's a So you have a different situation with your Archbishop as an Archbishop, and we're going to talk about that later. Okay. But first, so this, we're going to have you on for two different episodes. Mm-hmm. The other one will run at some point later. But I wanted to have you come in because I really didn't know you until mm-hmm. just recently. Um, cause I was out of the diocese for a little while. Uh-huh. Um, but you were, uh, an well, arch- you're too young to have known me from before because a lot of years have gone by <laughs> since I was home here. <laughs> that might be true. I don't know, <laughs> but you are a retired archbishop, but a son of the diocese yep. and have recently returned after you retired and are living in Sioux Falls. Yeah. So yeah. I was like, what a great opportunity to talk to an archbishop who's done quite a lot of traveling mm-hmm. and so on. So we're going to have you tell us how you got your call to the priesthood um, and a bit about your life as an archbishop. Okay. All right. Very so good. will you start by telling us where you grew up, tell us about your family, okay. those kind of things. Well, very good. Uh, Mom and dad, Leon and Dolores, met here in, in Sioux Falls after the war. And typical dad worked for Morell's and mother worked for the phone company. Oh, okay. and, and And they met they met at the Arcota Ballroom. So anyway. The oh, old, Oh, yeah. Much better place to meet uh, Uh, than than where most people meet. (laughs) Anyway, mother, some years later with my youngest brother, she she heard him scolding another little boy and shaking his finger at the little boy and saying, you know, if it weren't for the Arcota Ballroom, you wouldn't be here. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's that's kind of my origin. But when I when mom, when they brought me home from the hospital, they brought me home to 908 North Minnesota. And it was a little pink stucco house then. And it, it's still a stucco house, and it's still there. It's one of the houses they haven't torn down on North Minnesota. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's still there. Yeah. But um, um, mother and dad were married four years because I wasn't born until 1950, and they were sort of panicking. They wouldn't have any kids. Because you were the oldest. I was first. the first. Okay. So I came along in August of 1950, and shortly thereafter came two of my sisters. Karen is just um, is almost two years younger than I am, and Leanne is— is she's almost one of those, I forget what you call them, twins. She's maybe 11, 11 months or something like that, younger oh, than sure. Karen. So uh-huh. they're real close. Yeah. So there were the three of us, and um, we we stayed here until I was six, and I went to Hawthorne to kindergarten because the Catholic schools didn't have uh, oh, kindergarten sure. back then. Yeah. They started with first grade. Yeah. And then we, uh, Dad worked, by that time he didn't work at Morales anymore. He worked for BF Goodrich Tire Company. Okay. And they moved him up to Moorhead, Minnesota, across from Fargo. And he had a wholesale territory, you know, selling tires to gas stations along the, the Canadian border in North Dakota. Oh. And we were there for seven years. And so after seventh grade, the company moved him back to Sioux Falls. Okay. And he had the wholesale warehouse for Goodrich on North Main. And uh, so I finished eighth grade at Cathedral. 
And then I was in the first class that went to the minor seminary out at O'Gorman, okay. which is the big class, you know, there's right. with the seven of us in it, with Father Wensing and well, Heck seven. and all of those. Yeah. Well, anyway, seven, seven who became priests. Is yeah. That what, yes. Well, no, there's seven of us in that class. Oh. But I mean, from the minor seminary, you know, since age 14, I've known Father Heck and Father Wensing. So we, we, we're like family. We've known each other since we were 14 years old. And Father Landsberger joined a year later. Sure. So since mm-hmm. he was 15 years old, he's been part of the, of the little troop of boys too. <laughs> so anyway, um, but uh, I finished high school then at O'Gorman and then was sent on to St. Mary's in Winona, like everybody was at that time. And after college in Winona, um, Bishop decided to send me to Rome for, for theology Okay. Um, Which bishop at the time? That was Bishop Hoke. Okay. Uh, and um, it was kind of funny. Back in those days, Sioux Falls didn't send people to Rome very often. All right. Like every 20 years. Wow. <laughs> so there were two <laughs> old priests when I came home for ordination that had been there 40 years before me. Uh, Monsignor P.C. Conway, whom I think his last assignment was out in Hartford or okay. something. And, um, and another, an Irishman who studied for our diocese, uh, who was in retirement at Christ the King when I was first ordained. And then 20 years older than me was Monsignor Mahold. Oh, sure. So, uh, and then after me, then they started sending more often and, you know, the whole thing kind of went to pot. But what are you going to do? <laughs> I was just going to say, they figured you turned out okay so they could send no, more, I don't but know maybe what, not. <laughs> I don't know what happened. But anyway, I think they always, it was always sort of in protest that they sent people to Rome. So anyway, uh, I did my four years there and then came home for ordination. And... Um, I had five years at home in the diocese then um, before I went back to Rome for graduate studies in canon law, got my doctorate, and then entered the diplomatic service. Okay. And so I was ordained in 1976, not with the other six, though. That was was another one of those funny stories. Ordained ordained as a priest? Yeah. Okay. My priesthood ordination was not with them. They were ordained at the beginning of June, and I was ordained on June 27th. And the reason for that was... Um, one of the younger priests in the diocese whom Bishop Hoke had tried to keep busy and out of trouble uh, was planning the bicentennial, you know, 1976. And he suggested to the bishop that they ordain the class at the Huron Fairgrounds on the 4th of July. Well, it didn't go over so well with my classmates. (laughs) And shortly thereafter, Bishop Hoke was in Rome on pilgrimage and he said, he said, Tom, you know, your, your classmates are sort of upset with me, and we had to decide to do their ordination at the beginning of June. I said, well, I can skip my exam since I'm not staying for my license. No, no, Tom, you stay, finish your, your exams, and then you come home, and I'll ordain you on any Sunday you want at the cathedral. <laughs> so June 27th fell on a Sunday, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of people who came to the new Mass at the cathedral who found themselves for the very first time in their life in the middle of a priesthood ordination. Oh, my goodness. So anyway, it was kind of fun. That is that is really interesting because uh, most people don't mm. end up at a priest ordination. No, no, but these people didn't oh. have any choice. They came to the new Mass on Sunday, and there we were. But um, And they're like, how long is this going to yeah. take? But anyway, I'm the oldest of eight children. Okay. I, um, it ended up being three boys and five girls. Oh, wow. Um, my two brothers have both preceded me in death. They're They're gone. And, but I still got my five sisters, and sure. they all respect me, and I think they even love me. So anyway. <laughs> of course they do. <laughs> but um, but mom and dad had moved. One of the other reasons I'm not that well-known is because mother and dad moved away from Sioux Falls right. already when I was a freshman in oh, college in Winona. Okay. Sure. And at that time, 
you know, I never, they first, they were in Kansas city, Missouri for three years. And then, um, as a lot of corporations do, they, Goodrich tried to dump dad. Um, so they wouldn't have to pay benefits when they got to retirement. So he ended up buying a tire store, a retail tire store in Hutchinson, Kansas. Mm -hmm. And so all of my younger siblings, um, they kind of gravitate uh, more toward Kansas and sure. down that way. Because they're used so, to that area. Yeah. They grew up there. Yeah. Where? Whereas I was always there just on vacation. I was never there otherwise. It's a so, weird place to go on vacation, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, I always used to tell people I'm going home to Sioux Falls from Europe uh, on vacation. And they'd say, what? <laughs> and I said, yes. Also a weird place to go on no, vacation. Anyway, it was fun. <laughs> All right. So how did you get your call to the priesthood? Like, were okay. you? did you... Were you planning on being anything else other than a priest at any point? Well, when I was very young, I thought about being either a cowboy or a fireman. Of course, yes. Yeah. But anyway, no, <laughs> I, I, you know, you could be sort of theological about the whole thing and say that I got my vocation from my mother's womb. It's one of those things where, and I'm firmly convinced that for a lot of young men, um, it's something that grows with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, um, I couldn't tell you, I couldn't give you an exact time or a date when I decided— you know, that, that the fireman thing or the cowboy thing wasn't going to work anymore. <laughs> and where I gave up being fascinated as a little kid, preschooler, looking up at that mysterious woman with her her, her, her little pillbox hat up oh. on the organ in, in the cathedral, you know, <laughs> making these sounds come out of these big things. I mean, you know, uh, th- those were all distractions. But right. at some point or another, um, I decided that this was really something that I liked. Dad always says that when we were in Minnesota, one of the, the nuns, they were Benedictines from Crookston, Minnesota, at, at St. Joseph's in, in Moorhead. And um, she called Dad in, and she says, you know, Mr. Gullickson, that son of yours has a vocation. Yes, sister. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I remember at one time in those years over at Chandley, the high school, they had a vocations fair. Mm-hmm. And our next-door neighbors— were a real nice Catholic couple, and she had a cousin who was a Crozier father. Okay. And in those days, life was simpler, and you didn't think about hotels and motels. So they were putting up during this vocation fair um, um, the cousin plus another priest uh, who was a vocation director, national vocation director for the Palatine Fathers. And so um, Dad took me to the vocations fair, and that was kind of fun. And but I also got to meet them because they were right next door. Right. And I corresponded with both of them, I think, up until sometime in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, at which point, the Palatine, I think, married some gal and disappeared. And I don't know what happened to the Crozier. But <laughs> in any case, um, I had kind of always thought then in grade school that I wanted to be a religious. And then after after grade school, I'd go to Crozier Seminary in Onemia. Mm-hmm. And one day. Uh, sister over at cathedral, here at Cathedral School, um, she says, Monsignor wants to see you. That was Monsignor Peter Meyer. You're like, uh-oh. <laughs> Eighth grade boy, you know. <laughs> so I go over there, and I always, I venerated him. I mean, he was he was a kind of, he was a big man, mm-hmm. you know, and, and very impressive. And he sits me down in his office over in the rectory across from him, and he says, Tom, he says, I hear you want to be a priest. You know, and I couldn't get anything out. I just got it out in my head. <laughs> and uh, he says, you know, the Diocese of Sioux Falls really needs priests. He said, you know, and Bishop Polk is opening this minor seminary this fall. 
would you think about going there? Well, how do you tell them once a year? No. <laughs> You're like, so, yes, of course. <laughs> so in terms of vocation, I would say there have always been these gentle little things that in some way or another have affirmed me, age appropriate and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they've gone on my whole life that way. Mm-hmm. It's se- And it seems like there was much more of that. Like, like you had much more exposure to religious, to priests, to, to different people that could guide you in that than maybe a lot of young men do today. Which, although you, if parents can get that. Well, you know, the guidance bit is kind of funny because um, it's yes and no. Okay. You know, lots of times, you know, there's just, I remember we were still up in Moorhead. I must have been a, a seventh grader, maybe sixth. Uh, and I had gone out for football because mm-hmm. we, we would do that. And of course it was a, was just a charade because they didn't have uniforms or anything that fit us. You know, you'd be, you'd be out there trying to, <laughs> to get, get into a stance and stuff. And, and, and this great big heavy things that were for some high school boy would fall right down oh, off sure. of you and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> but anyway, at some point or another, one of the sisters, I think she was my homeroom teacher, whatever she was, she, she wanted to know whether I would commit myself to some kind of a national uh, catechetical competition, oh. you know, to memorizing these things and answering them and all sure. this kind of stuff. And she sort of pressed me a little bit. And I think my pride had been hurt for the umpteenth time about my trousers coming down on the football field. <laughs> and I decided to dump football and go with the catechism thing. So, so because your <laughs> so, pants were falling so I don't, down. <laughs> I don't know if there was any su- super discernment or anything in terms of vocation, but you know, these. <laughs> I was not expecting that. <laughs> anyway, but, but just to say, you know, we, we sometimes we, uh, we play ourselves down, yeah. but I don't really, I don't really think that as a child that the the kinds of simple things that were being done for me were all that different uh, than what happened now. But they were they were subtle and they were there. You know, one of the nice things about my parents has always been, you know, that you know, son, your mother and I are proud of you no matter what you do. Right. And they would, they would always say that, you know, if you wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer, whatever you wanted to be, we'd be fine with that. Or, you know, because we went home on weekends, we didn't stay at the minor seminary over on right. the weekend right. normally. Um, usually, I guess I'd take the, a city bus or whatever from O'Gorman back into town on Friday after school. But then on Sunday night, usually dad would drive me out. And I have to be careful not to say something that would be inappropriate here on the radio but I don't think it is. I'll just say it. And if some lady or somebody is offended, well, I'm sorry. You can, you can, Renee Terrified did not right put now. me up to the, no, 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 no. <laughs> but anyway, dad would be driving along and then he'd say, say, Thomas, why don't you tell them all to go to hell and stay home with your dad? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's the kind of family situation I came from. I knew I was fully supported yes. and all that kind of stuff and loved. That's that's so good to have and so important. Okay, so in case you didn't figure it out yet, we are talking to Archbishop Thomas Scullix, and I'm getting lots of surprises and good stuff. Yeah. Um, will you tell us a little bit about what you did as an archbishop? Because okay. you're, it, like I said, it's a little different. We're used to an mm. archbishop of a of a larger diocese, for instance, or mm. um, Archbishop Christophe Pierre, who is the ap- sure. apostolic nuncio. Yeah. Um, your role was a little different. How did you get well, there? And I mean, what did you do? Yeah, it was the same as Christophe Pierre's, but the only thing is, is that he has the United States to deal with, and I always had smaller countries or different types of things, which he had had previous to his assignment sure. in Washington. But 
Um, basically, the biggest difference is, you know, um, all of us, our vocation to priesthood is about the same, mm-hmm. you know, how that comes about. Um, some have goofy stories like I have to tell, and others, maybe they had a crisis that they worked through or right. something like that, right. some girlfriend they gave up or whatever. <laughs> but uh, all those kinds of things. Uh, but the, the the difference comes in then when you enter into this quote-unquote diplomatic career. Mm-hmm. Um, the Secretary of State of His Holiness asked Bishop Hoke already uh, if I could be released. I don't know who gave my name to them you know, when I was a seminarian mm-hmm. in Rome, but somebody did, if I could be released for this kind of service. And Bishop Hoke was a very wise man, and he said he filed a letter and did not even answer it. Uh, he said, Tom deserves to have some home, years at home as a priest. Enjoy that. Mm-hmm. And didn't think that as a young man, not yet even ordained, that I could make a decision like that. Right. And I think he was right. right. And I was blessed with five years at home. Okay. I loved it. Which parishes were you at? Well, I was in residence at Christ the King. Okay. Uh, and I taught full-time at O'Gorman. And then I went out to the minor seminary, and I was the last vice rector of the minor okay. seminary for the last two years it was open. Okay. Because Bishop Hoke knew already that it needed to be closed, but he didn't want to compromise the decision of his successor, Bishop Dudley. Sure. And Well, he didn't know it was Bishop Dudley yet when he made that decision, but um, so he did not close it, but it should have been closed already because um, the numbers were way down. Sure. And the other thing is, is that the world had changed from the time. Mm-hmm. You know, when I went as a freshman in high school, 14, you know, there'd be some tears at home from mom and dad, especially from mom, letting, you know, their little boy at 14 leave the house. Right. Well, uh, just that few years later, you know, like 12 years later, um, all of a sudden it was a major tragedy um, to let your 18-year-old boy Uh, I mean, you know, people, this this was, that was one thing. And then the other thing was, is um, we basically ended up out here uh, with high school boys, not that were loved so much by their parents. They were loved maybe, but sort of presented sometimes problems for their parents. Mm. Um, So they were using it as a place for them to get straightened out. Well, sort of of like a military school (laughs) kind of, almost, you know, where you're supposed to straighten them out. That's not helpful. (laughs) No. But anyway, so it was kind of rough those two years I was vice rector there taking care of these boys. But anyway, I I did that three years at O'Gorman, taught uh, the first semester I taught freshman religion, and I couldn't identify very well with freshmen. so. I was voted longest line at at the quarter, and they moved me to seniors <laughs> after that. And I did pretty well with seniors in senior religion. But then I also ended up taking over the Latin classes. Okay, sure. And so I did that for three semesters. But then after that, with the minor seminary closed, Bishop moved me, Bishop Dudley, moved me to the cathedral. And I was an associate there while Father Al was the um, the pastor, and with Father John Miles was the younger of the two associates. And... Um, and I was there for two years, and okay. I was also Bishop Dudley's Master of Ceremonies sure. from that time. Sure. So I had the five lovely years at home. Uh, I'm glad you did. Well, that's you know, a good thing. It was really great. Yeah. And then, um, but anyway, they asked Bishop Dudley twice, and then he said, "Well, if they ask again next year, I'll let you go." And uh, <laughs> and they did. And they did. <laughs> and so he kind of, and he let me go. But then afterwards, he he took an attitude. He he used to introduce me when I'd be home on vacation. He'd say. He'd say, Tom is our gift to the universal church. 
And I don't, it wasn't much <laughs> consolation for me, but he was sort of proud of it. Sure, but anyway, it was sure. good. Um, but um, so that career goes on and it's, and you can't really distinguish much. But the thing about becoming a bishop or an archbishop is, is that it's no longer a, a surprise thing where you're waiting right. for a phone call. You know that at some point or another, after you have 17 to maybe 20 years of service, um, they're going to call you and they're going to ask sure. you if you're ready to take on uh, the dignity of an archbishop and be the apostolic nuncio or delegate in this, that, or those countries. Okay. And so it basically is just a matter of time. So it's no longer the surprise. Right. So, you know, you'll hear all these stories of regular bishops or the, you know, I was flabbergasted. Right. I didn't, I, I I saw this number from Washington. I didn't know who that was. I didn't even answer it. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> we hear Bishop DeGroote's story often. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. Bishop, but he, yes. It's not the only one. They're all <laughs> <Right>? that way. <laughs> yep. But for me, of course, I knew it was something that was coming. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when it, it was just a question of when. Right, right. And so... Um, and which countries did you serve? You served okay. several places. I, well, yeah. Before before I became a nuncio, you know, my career, I started in Kigali, Rwanda. I was okay. two years in Rwanda, but I didn't do very well for health. I had problems with malaria and oh, other sure. things. So yeah. after two years, they moved me. Then I was three years in Vienna, Austria, which was yeah. nice, although interesting time. Mm-hmm. And then I had the honor of opening the nunciature in Prague, uh, which in 1990. Mm-hmm. So it opened, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Right. And I prepared for the first nuncio to come there who hadn't been there since before World War II. Right. And uh, so I had three years there. Very interesting. Then they sent me to Jerusalem because I was a native English speaker and they wanted me there for the negotiations between Israel and the Holy See Mm -hmm. for diplomatic relations between Israel and the Holy See. So I was there in Jerusalem for three years. Uh, And then then I went to Germany Mm -hmm. and I spent over eight years in Germany. And the reason for that was is that the nuncio at that time in Germany had been one of my professors in the academy, and he wanted me. And he had uh, he had a lot of pull in Rome, so he got me, and he kept me for the whole um, the whole time, the whole six, well, his whole six, almost seven years, and so it was a total of eight years there. Mm-hmm. And uh, but at that time, at some point or another, I had my years, and then I just had to wait until I got Archbishop Loyola's successor. Uh, settled in as nuncio in Berlin. Sure. And and then when that was done, then they could name me. Yeah. And so then I had, as a nuncio, I spent the first six years in the Antilles Episcopal Conference. So I lived oh, sure. in Trinidad, and I was responsible for 12 sovereign nations plus British, Dutch, and French territories. Mm-hmm. So a huge Bermuda Triangle from Bermuda all the way to Cayman, all the way down to French Guiana mm-hmm. on the continent. Mm-hmm. Mostly water, very few people. But yes. anyway, <laughs> a lot of travel. Yes. Uh, and then... Out of the blue, they sent me to Kiev, Ukraine. Oh, right. And I spent four years as the nuncio in Kiev. And, of course, that was the beginning of all of this sad, sad stuff which has happened. Right. You know, the pictures you may remember of all that fire and fighting in the center Mm -hmm. of Kiev was a 20-minute walk from my house. Oh, wow. So it was right there. And Archbishop, I'm going to stop you right there. Okay. We're going to—if it's okay with you, because we're running out of time. I have to to give Dr. Bergwald a little bit. But if it's okay with you— um, I want to pick this up as a little, we'll do a little bonus okay. episode for, for those of you who can uh, come over to YouTube at SF Diocese and you can, we'll do, we'll finish up uh, the Archbishop's uh, story of how he, his travels in Europe. Yep. And I want to ask you two other questions, which is, 
um, what has been the biggest blessing of your priesthood Very and good. the biggest challenge. Okay. So we'll we'll wrap that up, and you can come find us on YouTube at SF Diocese and check out the additional piece with Bishop, with Archbishop Bowenson. So that is it for us today. Hope you'll join us again next week for more Catholic.